0: Good evening, everybody. Uh, if you could turn to the book of James, we are going to finish James. So um, we've had 12 classes so far, 11, if technically, if you take out the meeting. And um, our goal tonight, I'd really like us to kind of create together a survey of the book or um, to run through what is the book about, how would we establish that, and um, how do we feel about that? Is, is maybe how I'd like us to end. Um, I, different than normal, I do not plan to read the entire book or to read a bunch of chapters. We've, I think, done that sufficiently. Well, well I'm sorry to disappoint you, Alan. Uh, but I think we've read it enough. Um, well, we're going to ideally talk about most of the book, so reference different passages throughout. Um, and um, I thought maybe I might get feedback that it was repetitive at this point if we read the book for like a seventh time uh, together. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I wouldn't get that feedback, but, uh, but we'll, we'll see. Um, so really, I want to start with a question that's going to take you back to really the first, call it three lessons, the three intro lessons that we did, um, and maybe let you use some of your experience since then to answer a question, and that is, if you were asked... What's the book of James about? What would you at this point, after studying it for a quarter, say James is about? Faith and how to improve upon it. Okay. Joshua said faith and how to improve upon it. Great. Michael?
1: waffling between the world and true spirituality and what that looks like and how to prevent it in your life all right i like that
0: very uh, plain language waffling between the world and true spirituality and what was the end what that looks like and, what looks like. and what that actually looks like in your life that's really good i like that a lot what else
1: have. Um, James is about how trials are revealers and builders of authentic faith, so speak and
0: act of the law Wow. I really like that. I'm not going to be able to say that again. Um, uh, but, yeah, that's why she wrote it down. It was very eloquent. I think my favorite part about it is, is discussing that trials are revealers of things, and specifically revealers of our heart. Either through trials we're going to find out that our heart is filled with dross. It is not spiritual. Or instead, like is referenced in 1 Peter, trials will refine us like fire. And in that, um, there will be proof as to what our true situation is related to how we're handling the world and spirituality. What else? Any others? My favorite from when we did this um, at the beginning of the, of the discussion was Teresa's, uh, and Teresa summarized the book then as concern that in trials their faith would not be steadfast. I, I really, really like that um, because it it kind of it's as simple as possible, but it expresses sentiments that are posed throughout the book. Steadfast is a word that shows up in the beginning and the end, very much bookmarks uh, the book as we talked about last week, um, that they're going to face trials, that their faith might not be steadfast. And just generally starting with the word concern, I think is really good because that's basically how he starts the book in, you know, verse two or three counter all joy, my brothers, when you face various kinds of trials, he's concerned about the trials But he's also concerned about how they're going to react to them, that when their faith is revealed, it may not be revealed to be true faith or truly spiritual. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts about why. So if you were going to summarize why the author has this concern, um, what would you say? He's not, I just want to be clear, he's not concerned that they're going to have trials, really. Like, they're going to have trials, they're actually in trials. He's concerned how they're going to respond to them. Why, from our study of the book, do you think that is? It could be because they have this skewed perception of rich versus poor and how they should treat one another. Okay? So the skewed perception of rich versus poor and how they treat one another, that that could be one reason. Chip?
1: It could be because they were, right at the very beginning, these uh, Christians who have been dispersed. So they're not surrounded by, potentially not surrounded by a a large group of similarly minded individuals like they may have. Now they're out there more remote. Groups of them may be smaller. It might be tougher to be that band of brothers that fights against the world, the
0: effect of the world. Yeah, yeah. so I like um, Chip and his description there is referencing, uh, first, like how they're defined, how the audience is, is defined in verses 1 and 2 of the book. To the 12 tribes of the dispersion, that these these Jewish Christians have been dispersed out of Jerusalem due to great persecution, and in that, they might find themselves potentially in, in a level of um, pagan, the pagan world that they might not even be familiar with. That many of them had grown up in Judea, surrounded by, at minimum, people that believed in Yahweh. But now they're thrust into the world, um, and uh, they don't have thousands of people, thousands of Christians like we know there were in Jerusalem. To all depend on, I think um, a highlight to that concept would be the way chapter chapter five ends. That beautiful section that tells us how we should respond if we have concern or sickness, we should pray. If we um, are joyful, we should sing. If we're sick, we should call the elders. He references all these different ways that we can get support from the brethren that we're around. Um, And I think that speaks to potentially a a solution for steadfastness, uh, or at least a help there. But at the very end of what Chip said, you you might not have heard it. He said it very quietly and referenced the world and that they were surrounded by worldliness. And I think if I summarized why I think um, James is expressing this great concern, it is because he sees worldliness rampant among them that a group of christians that should have great belief that should have great faith and that faith should lead to certain things instead it's led to opposite things it's led to a level of worldliness that he um chastises them greatly for through the book Um, can you, can you think of some areas, references maybe made throughout the book to their worldliness or the problems that they're facing? <laughs> yeah, so Joshua referenced the rich and the poor at the beginning of, verse, uh, of chapter 2. I especially think he highlights the fact that this is worldly in verse 3 when he says that they've become judges, and that's not all. They've become judges with evil thoughts. When they're doing this judgment of other people based on their financial situation, there's no there's time when judgment's good. Right? There's time when judgment helps us to be faithful. But here he references the fact that they became judges and their judgment is based on evil or in other words we might say based on worldly worldly concepts. What else Yeah. yeah, so they're going through these trials, and potentially they're blaming God. And why do you say that? So at the, at the end of chapter 1, or kind of really the middle of chapter 1, there's this discussion of how they handle, when there's a trial, who do they blame for it? And they blame God. Uh, or, or potentially they do, and he's very clearly telling them that they should not do that, that only good and perfect gifts come from God. And when you compare this to how pagans would think about um, the gods and what they would do effectively, if things were going poorly in your life, you assumed that the gods were mad at you, that they were vindictive, that you would cross them in some way, and then you would do things like sacrifice continually until until that bad thing stopped. Or you would pray continually without stopping, hoping that you would convince the, those gods that they would serve you. Or if you think back to Mount Carmel, they would, they would cut themselves, they would bloodlet in, in an effort to show uh, that, that they didn't want the God to be angry with them anymore. So I, I think that's a great example of how the way that they are looking at God is worldly in its nature, potentially, Uh, And instead of seeing him as uh, a God and Father um, who gives good gifts, instead they see him as potentially vindictive, unloving, and just there to punish them. Where else do you see worldliness showing up in the book? Nicole? Go ahead, Nicole. Uh,
1: um, Chapter 4, adulterers, do you not know that friendship with the world means hostility toward God So whoever decides to be the world's
0: yeah, so really, if you wanted, like, a really dense section that talks about this, if you have the ESV uh, and potentially New American Standard and also NIV that has, um, like, subtitles written in, it, you potentially have, like, a subheading in your Bible, you know, that uninspired stuff, that is that it, that it will say something like worldliness or warning against worldliness or the draw of worldliness, things like that. And he highlights that you have a choice. You can be a friend with the world. And if you choose to be a friend with the world, you have to be an enemy of God. And that implies the opposite is true as well. That if you're going to be a friend of God, you have to be an enemy of the world. Where else do you see this concept of worldliness showing up in the book? Peggy. I
1: was just going to say
0: Yeah, so in chapter 3, um, verses 13 through 18, it references that uh, this earthly wisdom, it, it delivers jealousy, uh, drives selfish ambition in their hearts, creates boasting. Um, it's earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Like if you really want to understand how terrible it is, that, that little um, uh, trio of descriptions of earthly, unspiritual, and demonic would explain to you how concerned the author is about it Versus, versus wisdom from heaven, which is described almost similar to how we think of like uh, the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, it's, it's purer than peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Yeah. Um, any others where, the, where we see the, the world or worldliness kind of plaguing these brethren? Um, I think in in the very beginning of the book, we see it, but it's hidden a little bit. I think you got to kind of look for it. And that's in verse five, when he talks about their need for wisdom and that they have a choice, they can pray and ask God for it, but he tells them that they're double-minded, they're unstable in all their ways. When you go into chapter four, you get some more color on what that double-minded concept is. What they're double-minded about is that they're trying to be both a friend of the world and a friend of God. So, So when they pray and they ask for wisdom, God doesn't hear them. God doesn't respond to them. He doesn't build them up with wisdom because they haven't actually decided that godly wisdom is what they want. They've decided that they want godly wisdom when it's convenient, but they also want aspects of earthly wisdom as illustrated by like the issues that they're facing with partiality uh, and those things. And then in verse 27 of chapter 1, in that pure and undefiled religion discussion, he, he says, we often we think about the, the widows and orphans, but that section's finished is um, not only caring and visiting for widows and orphans in their affliction, but keeping oneself unstained from the world. That they are they are facing this issue where they are stained by the world in such a way that they are continually pulled that direction. A stain is not easily lifted, right? And so they are being pulled towards the world instead of pulled towards, pulled towards God. So, so if the book, as I've kind of presented it and Teresa said, if the book is about the author's concern that worldliness is going to erode their steadfast nature What's the solution to that? Steadfast. So, so you said to be steadfast. I, would, I wouldn't say that. Steadfastness is the outcome if we achieve the solution. But what does he present as the solution? Evan? Uh, the
1: verse that comes to my mind is chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt it's laying down your desires and your passions
0: and letting God take over Yeah, I, I really like that. So laying down your passions and your desires in humility before the Father for Him to exalt you. What else? Uh, resisting the devil he'll flee
1: from you.
0: Yes, so in this section in chapter, in chapter four about our relationship with either God or the devil, we're given this choice. We can resist the devil and he'll flee from us. Um, how do we get that though? By submitting, by submitting ourselves to God. Great. Yeah. By submitting ourselves to God. I like that. Callie, what were you going submitting, submitting
1: to say?
0: Yes. Yeah, so submitting to God's wisdom. Again, that shows up in chapter one, about verse five and six, and then in chapter three, like 15 through 17, and we're told what that godly wisdom will create, it will create a harvest. A harvest of righteousness is what it will create. I, I, think, I think the author is pointing us to that the solution um, to worldliness is righteousness. That the solution is wisdom from God. That those things work together. And you might also say that it's a relationship with God. That presents the solution, and ultimately that solution leads to steadfastness, and that steadfastness leads to salvation. Jacob, were you gonna say something? Uh,
1: prayer. prayer is solution to so to the solution.
0: So he prayer. ends, he ends with, with prayer, and why in this discussion do you think that's important? Yeah, so I, th- I think when we talk about prayer as a solution in suffering and trials, it's really important that we don't see prayer as a means to relieving the trial. Because what he says in chapter 1, when he lays out what the benefit of the trial is, is that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, steadfastness, how that's full effect, that you may be perfect and complete Lacking in nothing. And if, you, if you're struggling with that, you need to pray for wisdom. That's the, in verse 5. Let him, if he lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. In, cha, in chapter 5, he actually says pray, as, as Jacob references. But in verse 5 in chapter 1, he, he uses the same sort of idea in terms of asking God. And so to achieve wisdom and righteousness and a relationship with God, prayer is certainly involved. I, I often think when I'm growing up, especially um, in discussions about righteousness, I've always seen that as being about my relationship with God. Um, and in James, we can certainly see that concept that, that righteousness is dealing with a relationship with God. So we reference verse 5 of chapter 1, if you seek wisdom, ask of God. And then in verse 17 that every good and perfect gift is from God. Um, chapter three, that God yearns jealously over our spirit. He wants a relationship with us. He's not okay if we try to have a relationship with someone else, uh, with the devil. He, he wants our relationship with him. Um, or chapter or fourth, when we're told to submit ourselves to God and he'll draw near to us. That again, that's about, that's about a relationship with him. But I think the book of James presents, presents a slightly different understanding about righteousness. Not that, not that we don't need to have a relationship with God to be righteous, but instead it gives us a ton of examples or ways to understand or interrogate our lives to really understand if we have a relationship with God. So what I'm I'm about to say is that it's not not that the book is saying that we just need to do a lot of works and that will result in our salvation. Relationship with God, wisdom from Him, is what leads to salvation. But, But the book is presenting a lot of ways that we can interrogate what we're actually doing to know if we will be steadfast because um, we exhibit the signs of righteousness that are discussed in the book. What are you going to say, Jim?
1: I, I think I'm in alignment with you here. I, I, I have long considered that from the book of Romans, chapter one, where he talks about um, that the wrath of God would be kindled against all unrighteousness and ungodliness. So there's a distinction, from Paul's perspective in Romans, between those two of some sort, and. Um, I've heard explanations that people say unrighteousness is, is how we are with mankind, our, 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 our relationships with others and how we treat them and serve them. And ungodliness is our relationship with God. And I don't know if I could go that far, but it is interesting to me that, that Jesus teaches in the Sermon of the Mount the way the goats and sheep would be separated is in the way that we treat mankind when he says, you know, when I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was without clothing, when I was thirsty, you didn't bring me water. When I was hungry, you didn't bring me food. And they said, when did we not do this for you? And he says, when well, you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And James echoes that sentiment by says, when someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm hungry, and you say, well, good, I'll pray for you, On your way. Is that right or wrong? And, and is that not
0: aligned with what Jesus was teaching about righteousness? Yeah, so uh, often when we talk about living righteously, I think we, we frequently reflect a very specific set of things that we expect people to do. This is going to be a test to see if you guys agree with me. So I don't, I don't know. This could go sideways. Um, what do you think that if someone asks us what they have to do to be righteous, what would we say to them? Typically, we would say follow God's words. Okay, so follow God's word. words. That was number one on my list. I said read your Bible, so that's, I think that's pretty close. Yeah. What else might we say? That if you're going to live righteously, what do you need to do? Action to it. Say again? There's action. Yeah, there's action. There's things that you need to do. Like what? Baptism. Yeah, so we would say baptism. That's number fifth on my list. What else would we tell someone is really important if they're gonna be righteous? Sherry? Live like Jesus. Okay, live like Jesus. I didn't have that on my list. That's a good one though. Stop sinning. Yeah, the very ambiguous <laughs> stop sinning. Super easy, just take care of that, get it done. Some might
1: say go
0: to church. Yeah, go to church. That's number three on my list. Worship or a symbol. Yeah. That that that's how you know if you have a relationship with God. Seek and save the lost. Yeah, so be evangelistic. I think that's a great one. I think echoing what, what Jacob mentions, we'd probably tell someone, if you want a relationship with God, if you want to be righteous, you're going to have to pray. We tell them to, to pray often probably. What's something else we'd say is important? Help the needy. Okay, we tell them to help the needy. And I think that would very much align with what James would tell us. Well, we're going to get to what James is going to say in just a minute.
1: So we get, we're getting to a point where you're alive in every aspect is mirroring God's righteousness. Because our glory is His glory. We're a reflection of His nature. Yeah, And it's a general disposition of God's people and always has it.
0: Yeah, so to be righteous, we have to reflect the Father. That's, that's the closest we can do to being righteous. We can't, we can't really be righteous. God has to ascribe righteousness to us. Um, but I, I think one that hasn't been said is that we would tell people that they need to be doctrinally sound. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that that's bad, but I think we would really clearly tell them That there are things about doctrinal soundness that they they can't just believe God. They have to do certain things as a result of that. And we would often reflect that as being doctrinally sound. Um, Or
1: go to the right church.
0: (laughs) And problematically, we might reflect that less is doctrinally sound and more is make sure you you go to the right church, right? Um, We've already already reflected some of the things um, to what I'm about to ask. But, but when James highlights righteous living in this book, how does James describe it? So Kathy already said one, needy or caring for others. From, uh, faith without works is dead. All right, so faith without works is dead. So an active faith that causes us to do things. That seems, it's a little redundant, right? Because active faith necessarily means it's going to cause us to do things. But I'm saying that because I think I've often heard active faith talked about as doing the top five things I just mentioned and not necessarily having active faith in other ways uh, besides that. What else? Does James tell us? Don't show partiality. Yeah, so don't show partiality. Um, and so in our relationship with others, don't, don't become judges, um, especially on physical things. What else? Control what say. Yeah, so so much of the book is actually dedicated to referencing the importance of controlling our tongue, right? So we often talk about 1 verse 27, pure and undefiled religion. I think I said in one of the classes, that I really believe that you need to connect the verse prior to that, verse 26, that, that it's the pure and undefiled religion statements in the middle. And I, I believe that really that section starts in verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, his religion is worthless. The concept that if we can't control our tongue, our religion is worthless is personally quite terrifying. Um, controlling my tongue is one of the things I struggle with the most in all of my relationships. Um, and then a good half of chapter three, a little bit more than chapter three, he lays out three different examples of how much, of how difficult and powerful the tongue is um, in, in all those examples that he gives. Controlling our tongue is a primary physical way that we show our heart, that we show what's in us. Sherry, Wouldn't that go along with being patient? it would go along be, with being patient, which is then echoed in the discussion of wisdom towards the end of chapter three. Yeah, what else? On
1: chapter three two it says your good conduct uh, shows by your words your, your wisdom by your conduct.
0: Yeah, so there's this your your wisdom your your good conduct shows your wisdom. And then wisdom leads you to good conduct. It's a self-reinforcing concept there of what wisdom and works leads us to do. How else does James tell us that we show, that we show that we, we live righteously?: humility. Yeah, humility. Uh, that's number nine on my list, and was referenced, I think, towards the middle of chapter four. What else? Yeah, so controlling our anger. Um, Are you getting that from uh, the discussion of wisdom in chapter 3 or somewhere else? Uh, Yes, thank you. I forgot that one. Um, So it gives us this list, these triplets, be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Again, I think that that often plays out most easily with how we use our tongue, um, we, we show our anger, and he references that. But then there's lots of other ways that if we aren't slow to anger, we'll, sh, we'll show um, whether or not we are really attaining to righteousness. Um, what else? Alan?
1: Patience and suffering just from the end
0: of but also chapter 5. So. Yeah, so patience and suffering. Actually, being patient through the suffering... Um, which I think is counterintuitive that we would, our desire is not to be patient through the suffering. Our desire is to have the suffering end (laughs) as opposed to praying that we're patient through the suffering. I'd rather not be patient. I'd rather just be over when it comes to suffering. Any others?
1: And that's our prayer. Most of the time it's prayer. Stop this. Get rid of this from me. And we need to be patient through it.
0: I think Barry has referenced that a number of times, that frequently when we're in trials and suffering, we pray for the trial to end as opposed to praying that the trial does what's described in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1. The trial, the suffering, has a productive aspect to it um, if we will embrace that trial and maintain our steadfastness through it. Yeah, the blessing comes through the trial, not the end of the trial. And it doesn't even reference that the trial actually
1: ended. So it says you, you kept going even in, in face of the trial.
0: That's great. What else? Any others? We'll have to study to
1: show that we so that
0: Yes, ma'am. Yeah, we'll have to study. What else?
1: Verse um, 13. Verse 13. Chapter three, we kind of talked about the and all that bodies the attitude and character. he's talking about how we have good conduct. Um, so if everyone gives wise understanding by his good conduct, he should show his words and kind of gentleness, some let's say meekness that wisdom brings. So it's how we how we behave and act, how we respond in certain situations, where that goes along with controlling the time, our students, our behavior. Uh, and then what that brings is wisdom uh, and how we show righteousness is the type of wisdom that we have and that generates it. And that's further in verse seventeen the wisdom from above that is pure, peaceable, gentle and accommodating for uh, mercy to be free, partial, not to the Which is where that wisdom comes of moves and receive that which is from above the world.
0: Yeah, I, I love the picture that that paints. The... the the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, is the comment right after that. Um, you can think of a, a beautiful grain field that's been sown and it's been watered and has grown and is beautiful, or a garden that's planted. And when it's reached maturity, it is budding and blooming and full of life. Um, that is the description of what wisdom creates in us. It's a garden that's filled with purity and peace and gentleness and reasonableness and mercy and good fruits and impartiality and sincerity. Um, And so when when we look to understand and inspect ourselves about whether or not we're attaining to the righteousness that James lays out, the righteousness that will enable us to be steadfast and will produce all of these things, I, would, I really think that, that the author is, is trying to make certain that we don't just judge ourselves based on those, call it, first five things that we talked about. Reading your Bible, praying often that you worship in a symbol, that you're baptized, that you're doctrinally sound. Those are not bad things. They're not problematic things. They are not things we should ignore. I'm not presenting that concept at all. But, but that if you want to understand after you've done those things, if you want to understand that if you, if you are living righteously in a way that will produce steadfastness, James gives us a much more fulsome way to interrogate that. Do you, do you care for widows and orphans? Are you stained by the world? Do you control your tongue? Do you care for others? Do you show partiality? Does your active faith cause you to do things for other people? Would you be described as peaceable, gentle, pure, reasonable, full of mercy, or sincere? Would people say that your life was planted in peace and yielding a harvest of righteousness that's grown in peace? Would you be referred to as humble? I think that's a much, a much deeper way to evaluate our righteousness and if we're on the path that God wants us to then if we only measure ourselves based on if we read the Bible or we only measure ourselves based on prayer. We have to still have those things but we have a much richer way to understand if we are working towards the relationship with God that he intends for us. Um, I love how much the book of James so explicitly talks about the importance of doing, of having an active faith. And I, I've mentioned this before, but I really like um, how there's a self-reinforcing nature that's mentioned. Um, if you, if you look in 1, verse 25, that a doer who acts will be blessed in his doing. And then you go down to 2, verse 22, we're told our works complete our faith and perfect it. And then down in 3, verse 18, which we've referenced a couple times now, that harvest of righteousness, of gentleness and mercy and good fruits and impartiality. There's this self reinforcing cycle that James is laying out. That first, oh, go ahead, Michael. And then also a warning,
1: chapter four seventeen. Right? Yeah.
0: Yes. So yeah. So all this doing is important. And then in 4 verse 17, a a very stern warning that if you know the thing to do and you don't do it, it it is sin. Um, Your least favorite Bible, yeah, yeah. It's convicting, right? That if you know all these things to do and you don't do them, reading your Bible won't save you. If you don't do these other things, it's terrifying, Jerry?
1: At one point, Jesus said, Well, if you love me, feed my sheep. And I feel like that's all throughout this. All of these are ways to help each other, take care of each other, and show that love.
0: Yep. Sherry, were you going to say something? Yeah. Um, I've
1: always been a little confused about we're supposed to be peacemakers. That's true. but yet, we have enmity with the world. I mean, there's always somebody out there that. When uh, they see you, they see that you are trying to live right. They always want to cause problems or um, there's that enmity with the world. They, they don't like the world. They will do things to cause you trouble or to, um, or to make you look bad or, you know, like they're not as good as what they act like they are. Just say things that are not, There's that enmity and then you're trying to make peace, that's, that's
0: very difficult. It is very difficult. And I think that's actually why I lean so much into the importance of peace here. That the harvest of righteousness comes when it's planted and sown with peace. The, the concept of the, the fact that the world is opposed to us and that the world is at enmity with us we can resolve that by understanding when, when, we, when we think about verses, for example, that tell us to be above reproach. Are we, does the world hate Christ? Yes. Will the world potentially hate us? Yes. But when they make a charge against us, is there charge that we don't take care of orphans? Is there charge that we don't care for the sick amongst us? Is there charge that we aren't peaceable? Well, if it is, we haven't been above reproach. That if we're going to lean in to truly being above reproach, we can still be peaceable, but that doesn't mean that the world is at peace with us. Jesus was peaceable, but that that didn't prevent the world from killing him. Um, And that's a very uncomfortable concept, right? Right?
1: They don't care about it. They don't care they just. They think you're doing
0: it wrong. They don't. They, they don't no, sometimes it's not even true. Right. Yeah, their goal, their hatred is not necessarily logical. Um And it doesn't have to be.
1: Live in peace with all men, and that's what we're talking about here. This is what I need to do to show that my faith is is real, and I am who I say that I am. Yes, and I think if we live that, yeah, there might be people that still say bad things, but I have this is still true. What I am still acting the way Jesus taught me.
0: And they won't be able to charge against us that you say you believe in love and peace. But look at all these ways that you don't exhibit love or peace. But part of what I'm encouraged in is the self-reinforcing nature that's talked about here. That we'll be blessed in our doing. That our faith is completed by the works. We're not saved by the works, but our faith helps complete our works. And then we yield this harvest of righteousness. I don't, I don't think that the discussion here about the harvest of righteousness is about the future that that's about heaven. My, my belief is that the, what's laid out here is there's a harvest of righteousness. And then what happens every year? There's another planting. There's another harvest. That over and over we're given the opportunity to be blessed in our doing. And then over and over we're given the opportunity to validate our faith by our works. And and that it's not just that we're validating our faith, we're perfecting it. We're completing it by our works. And then we get another harvest of righteousness. As we embrace what the Father wants for us, he will bless us throughout all of that. He's not asking us to do perfectly. He's asking us to give him the opportunity to bless us while we're acting. And when he blesses us, the yield of that the yield is righteousness and righteousness leads to steadfastness and steadfastness is how we survive the trials that every one of us is dealing with and that's what James wanted for his audience not that they just have some mental ascent of faith but that they have a faith that generates a steadfastness that carries them home to heaven through the trials that they're suffering. And the beautiful part is that we get that promise too, that we get to be blessed in our doing, that we get to perfect our faith with action, and that we as a people can be blessed to yield a harvest of righteousness. Thank you all for studying the book with me. Um, I appreciate so much um, your active nature in class and how much you've been studying outside of class. It has really made this study um, be much more than what I could have done on my own. Thank you so much uh, for being part of it.